leaders would serve you or someone that you know and love, uh, please feel free to take one of them and give them to them or use it yourself. Matthew 12. Well, in just a couple of weeks, we are going to be paused in Matthew. Next week will be the the last section in Matthew that we are in for a little while because we're going to begin our annual Summer in Psalms series at that point. And we'll be in book five of the Psalms in two weeks. And as always, I'm eager to jump in. I'm actually going to be able to listen to quite a bit more preaching than I normally do with some other brothers jumping in, including our uh, elders, Brian and Paul, on multiple occasions. But... I'm not quite ready for it yet because I'm really excited about what we have in front of us in Matthew 12 in this series, The Unexpected Kingdom. And what we have before us as we are getting close to wrapping up our time in Matthew for a little while is a sort of a wrap up of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. As you may recall, if you've been with us in these previous last several weeks, Jesus has uttered in the passages previous some of the most sobering and difficult to process words that he ever said. He said in the text previous to this one that there is a sin that will never be forgiven, and that sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right after he said that comes then this request in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, as we look at this passage, we wonder, is this request one that came chronologically immediately after the words from Jesus previous in verse 37 and and before that, where Jesus says, By your words you will be condemned. And then right away, perhaps, they answer him and say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We don't know exactly if this is an immediately uh, following chronological moment or uh, if it's just something that Matthew wanted to include thematically as being connected. Matthew and the other gospel writers don't always write everything down in perfect linear chronological order. Sometimes the connection between the events that they are recording are more thematic. The truth is that it could be either here. It works well both ways. And so let's just leave it at that and say it could be either an immediately following event or something that Matthew just wanted thematically to record right after that because of how connected they are. So let's just, uh, let's just say that. We don't know exactly uh, in what way it connects most immediately. And then just enjoy the beautiful and masterful manner in which the Lord has ordained the scriptures to be put together and acknowledge that there is a connection here, whether it is thematic or chronological. And since there is a connection here, let's make sure that we note exactly what was happening before it in chapter 12. At the beginning of chapter 12, there's this Sabbath controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. Then in the middle of chapter 12, there's this blasphemous rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders. And then here at the end, we've got this phrase that occurs twice in verse 39 as well as in verse 45. And that is the phrase, evil generation. So the whole chapter 12 is centered around this heat between Jesus and the religious leaders. 
and it's continuing to heat up. And at the heart of the religious leaders' beef with Jesus is that they do not believe, they reject his claims that he is the Messiah. And interestingly, Matthew wants to leave his readers with no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he makes as clear as possible in the whole of his gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. But that as the story is unfolding, one narrative after another, as Matthew's writing them, the leaders refuse to believe. And you know, before we jump in further, I just have to stress this. I was actually talking about this with my dad just this past week. I consider myself, and indeed I am, what I suppose you could call a religious conservative. In other words, my theology is conservative, my uh, doctrine is the time-tested apostolic doctrine revealed in the New Testament, passed down now for two millennia. I'm not on board with the quote-unquote liberal theological leanings of some and I am convinced that I'm right about that. But I also have to see here that with a commitment to theological and doctrinal and practical conservatism may come some dangers, such as being unable or unwilling to see something that God is doing plainly in front of my face because of the blinders of pride and confidence in man-made, time-tested systems that I may trust in. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but next week is our last time in Matthew for a little while until September, and we just cannot let this opportunity pass by us as we're looking into the summer in just a couple of weeks. We have got to see, as I've said I think at least twice in our series, that the people that we, you and I, are most like in these passages are the Pharisees, the religious conservatives. And I'm not saying that all of us are legalists or that all of us are equally like the Pharisees. I'm just saying that they are the religious conservatives in that time whose commitment to their systems and structures led them to resist and ultimately reject the revelation of Jesus, God's chosen servant, as the Messiah. And so all I am saying is that while there are many other vital things that we must learn from this encounter with God's word, where we see Jesus debate and rebuke these religious leaders, one absolutely crucial thing that we must see is that we conservatives, like the Pharisees, need to be careful not to let our systems and our structures and our traditions get in the way of what God is revealing to us through his word could be an adherence to what we may call the system of reformed theology, which I'm committed to. It may be a preference towards baptistic polity, which I'm committed to. Or a structure of our own specific spin on what exactly biblical complementarianism is and how men's and women's roles in the church are supposed to look. Or what we consider the right methods of children's ministry. Or how we think a corporate worship service should go. Or whether or not the Holy Spirit's miraculous gifts are still in activity today. I'm not saying those things aren't important. And I'm not saying you should let go of your convictions on those things. But I am saying let's be careful to be more committed to the Lord and His Word than we are a man-made system. 
Okay, so the religious leaders are continuing to refuse to believe, and that's what's at the heart of their request with roots of evil. already read verse 38 to you where they make this request for a sign. At least thematically, and perhaps even chronologically, this request is connected to the previous passage. And in that passage, the religious leaders rejected the notion that Jesus had exercised these demons in this man who was horribly sick because of it through divine power. They rejected that it came from divine power. Instead, they said that Jesus cast out that demon through the power of demons, through the power of Satan specifically. And their response, we saw last time, was faithless and slanderous. And next came this request. It's a simple enough request. They're essentially saying, we want a sign. Some of us on the church leadership team feel the same way. Our church building is badly in need of a new sign. But that's not the same kind of sign that this passage is talking about. We want a sign here has something to do with an evil-rooted request, according to Jesus. You may look at this request and at first glance think that there's nothing wrong with such a thing. I don't know about you, but I've asked God for a sign before. Have you? Especially as a kid, as a very young Christian. I can't recall a specific situation, a a story I could tell you, but I certainly had more than one instance in which I said something to God along the lines of, if you could just give me some kind of a sign, I'll do such and such, which you've called me to, and I need to know for sure that you're real, so I'll do it. Or show me a sign, and I'll be certain forever that you're really real. What exactly did they mean by a sign? And the reason that question is important is because they had already seen many miracles from Jesus. So it can't be as simple as show us a miracle, because he had already performed miracles of various sorts. So what good would just one more be? even they would potentially see that as a, as a silly request, especially if this is a chronologically close event because they had just seen a demonic exorcism and healing. The word for sign here in the original language is a word that has more to do with a sign from heaven. So they had seen demonic exorcisms before. They had seen healings and miracles before, but some of the demonic exorcisms and healings that they had seen in their time and place were from other people that weren't claiming to be the Messiah through the work of God at various points in his servants' lives. But Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. And so they said, give us a sign. Give us a heavenly sign, not just a, you might say, earthly miracle. Think of it as wanting something greater than the miracles that they had already seen. Maybe they had in mind something more like the plagues in Egypt that they had no doubt learned so much about as children. Remember, Jesus had actually said someone greater than Moses is here. So perhaps they were thinking, okay, greater than Moses, do some plagues. Okay, the one who says something then the greater than the temple is here, send us manna from heaven something that fit their desires, but not necessarily God's designs. 
And friends, isn't this so often what the human race has done? So often what we do? Oh Lord, what you have already done to prove and display your trustworthiness in my life is not good enough. What I really need now is this. It's, it's going to be easier for me to trust you, Lord, if you'll just do this. What your word plainly says isn't really what I'm looking for right now. It's not going to meet my felt needs right now. So give me something else. Now, you and I may not expect a manna from heaven or an Egyptian plague or a divine hand writing in the sky. But aren't there things or conditions that we impose on the Lord as prerequisites for trusting him on a daily basis? Maybe for you, it's just simply the removal of stress in your life, the healing of a sickness, the increase of income, the resolution of some problem. Sometimes we impose these conditions on the Lord as prerequisites for trusting and believing in Him on a daily basis. If I could feel better, if I could have more money, if this problem would be resolved, if my stress was gone, then I'll see that you're really caring for me and I'll trust you. I wonder if this is yet another way that we are more like the Pharisees than we might want to consider. So this is a request with roots of evil, and we know that it is a request with evil roots because what follows is this refusal from the righteous judge. You see this in verses 39 and 40. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus hears their request in verse 38, and then he says in verse 39, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Why doesn't he oblige them? Why doesn't he call down manna from heaven or whatever else that may have been in mind? Well, the reason is in verse 39. It's because that those who request signs like they did are characterized by adultery and evil according to Jesus. Wow. You might read that and say, oh, come on. What's the harm of asking for some proof? Isn't that a little harsh? Strengthen our faith, Lord. I think the Lord would possibly say to us in reply, no, that's not harsh at all. I'm refusing you the signs you're looking for because no matter what sign I give you, saying to the Pharisees, you still would not believe. You're not... Pharisees, you're not looking for proof, because if you were, you'd already believe. I've already given you proof. You're only getting one more, and it's coming later, and that's the sign of Jonah. Before we get to that exception of the sign of Jonah that they would get, let's just address this here in verse 38. The word adultery that Jesus is referring to is not an indication that these this, these people in the Jewish community were literally regularly committing physical marital unfaithfulness 
Whether or not that may have actually been the case, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is an accusation that was a common indictment of Old Testament prophets towards the people of God because of their spiritual unfaithfulness, their covenant unfaithfulness to their husband, Yahweh. And so Jesus is saying that the religious leader's request actually betrayed spiritually adulterous hearts towards the Lord, unfaithful to the Lord. This request had at its root a lack of faith in what Yahweh was revealing about himself that betrayed their spiritual adultery, their spiritual unfaithfulness to their covenant with God. And this is interesting because, in large part, if you look at the history of the people of God, by this point in their history, they had become more religiously pure since the times of the prophets. And yet, Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, shows up and says, you are unfaithful to the covenant. You are religiously unfaithful. You are spiritually adulterous. And that means something very important for us today, too, because it means that formal religion and true spirituality are not necessarily the same thing. The Jews were more committed to their religion at this point than they were when they received indictments from the prophets. They were externally religiously pure, but they were internally evil and adulterous. They were spiritually blind. They had the Messiah right in front of them, whom they had prayed for and longed for, and they rejected him. Because at the heart of their religion was simply their own structures and systems, not true covenant faithfulness to God in a relationship. So that when God's Messiah literally shows up and stands in their midst and says, I'm here, but he didn't fit into their structures, they disqualified him. And so Jesus refuses to give them the kind of sign that they want, but instead says the sign of Jonah would be the sign that they get. And here's what it is in verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself there, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just like Jonah was in the fish, so would Jesus be in the earth. A few things to note here. Most importantly, first of all, the heart of the earth, in this phrase here, simply means buried. That's simply what it means. Jesus is predicting here his death and burial. Now, that's not very interesting of a thing to predict if you're not the Messiah. Because every single one of us can say, someday I'm going to die and be buried. And none of us is going to go, wow. <laughs> Everyone dies. But for the man claiming to be the Messiah to be standing there saying, I'm going to die, would perhaps have been unthinkable to some of these people waiting for this great king to show up on a white horse and wipe out all their enemies and restore the kingdom of God on earth. But of course, implied here also is 
yes, that the Messiah would die but be raised because he says it would be for three days. And so you might say this was going to be the final sign of the trustworthiness of God and his chosen servant. Okay, so that's the first thing. The whole heart of the earth thing, Jesus is going to be buried, he's going to be dead, and it's only going to last three days. Second thing to note is that the Jonah story and Jesus' story are not intended here to be understood as particularly similar in that many other ways, except for the fact that they both experienced deliverance from death after being in the earth, so to speak, for a set period of time. So don't read into the book of Jonah too much because of this passage. The third thing is for us to not get tripped up by this phrase here that maybe is already starting to trip you up as you're looking at it, the phrase three days and three nights. You may be wondering why Jesus would say that because Jesus, if you, if you understand this, was not literally buried for 72 hours. He was buried Friday night, he was in the grave Saturday, and then he rose Sunday morning. That's probably closer to like 36 hours or something along those lines. But what you have to understand is that the Jews started counting a new day at sunset, not at midnight. And so also part of a day was often referred to as a whole day. And they often would lump in the night with the day that it followed in their phraseology. None of those things were uncommon. In fact, they were normal in that culture. And so for it to be said in the scriptures that he would be buried for three days makes total sense because of the way they counted days. And even the three nights thing, lumping in that night with that day just as a grouping of time. So I don't think there's anything to stress, stress out about here when it says that Jesus would be in the ground for three days and three nights. The math being imperfect according to our current precise mathematical calculations is not a problem for the trustworthiness of Scripture because of the way that they would have meant it in that culture and at that time. So those are the three things to note as we see what Jesus says would be the sign in verse 40. But the point is clear, even aside from those three things to note. Jesus was to be delivered from death after three days and nights in the grave. And that would be the final and most important sign that proved that Jesus was indeed God's sent one, the Messiah, the king of the unexpected kingdom. But it's not as if there weren't other proofs. Jesus' whole life and ministry included proof after proof after proof. The resurrection you could think of as the grand finale. In just a little over a month, we're going to have 4th of July celebrations and we're going to have the opportunity to look at some fireworks shows. And when you are watching a fireworks show, there's no question in your mind while you're watching a fireworks show that what you're watching is a fireworks show. But once that grand finale hits, it just seals the deal. You're watching it. You're satisfied. You're enjoying it. You're marveling. And there's no room for any doubt of what you've been watching. That's kind of like what all the proofs leading up to the resurrection is like. So they ask for a sign. Jesus refuses and tells them that they'll get one more later. And then he speaks of the repentance and faith that is required for salvation. Verses 41 through 42, read along with me. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is painting a picture here to describe to his listeners and Matthew's later readers that what's needed is repentance and faith, not another sign. Jesus is saying here that both the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, or as you may know her, the Queen of Sheba, would rise up, he says it twice, would rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. What's Jesus talking about here with this picture? Well, let's try to color it in a little bit, the picture that Jesus is painting. Imagine a scene, which is implied by Jesus here, of this great trial on the day of judgment. With all the religious, Jewish religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus, making their defense against the judge, the great judge, God himself. And the judge calls for two witnesses. First, let's say it's the king of Nineveh in the day of Jonah, and then the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba in Solomon's day. Turn back with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. If you're using the Bibles in the, in the chairs, you're going to find this on page 290. 290. 1 Kings 10. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing, hid nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Boy, there's a lot there. But essentially what's happening is that the queen of Sheba takes this great journey. Jesus in our passage says that she comes from the ends of the earth. It's a great journey for her to see the wisdom of God on display in his king Solomon. Now we don't have in our normal frame of reference exactly uh, the, the knowledge of exactly how far away a trip this was. But if you look at what it probably was, it was probably around 1,200 to 1,500 miles. That's from Denver, the capital of Colorado, to Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, where I used to live. 
and she would have done it by camel, not by Toyota Sienna like we did a few years back. It could have taken her multiple months to take this journey. Day after day after day, riding on a camel, months to go this 12 to 1500 miles to see the wisdom of God on display in his king because of the report that she had heard about him. Now, it seems in 1 Kings 10 that she was probably a bit skeptical of Solomon and his God initially, but once she saw it for herself, did you notice what it said at the end of verse 5? When she saw all this, there was no more breath in her. In other words, the glory of God on display through his king and the wisdom of his king took her breath away. Second, look at Jonah chapter 3. So this is towards the very end of the Old Testament. You're going to find Jonah on page 774 and 775 if you're using the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. This is the second witness. So first, the great judge calls the queen of Sheba to the stand. He also is going to call the king of Nineveh to the stand. This is what Jonah 3, 1 through 5 says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's after the whole great fish thing. And he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So these Ninevites received this powerful message from this man who had been delivered from death. And the message is, repent, or in 40 days, you're toast. And they repent. That's what's happening when they put on sackcloth and call for a fast after they believe. They repent. And so this is what Jesus references in Matthew 12 as the people who would rise up against these Jews and stand in judgment over them. And so back to our picture where we're, we're coloring it in a little bit. The king of kings, the judge, holds court at the day of judgment. He calls these two witnesses to the stand for the trial of the Jews. And first, the king, the judge, asks the king of Nineveh, why did you respond in repentance and faith to the message of repentance that my prophet Jonah preached to you. And the king of Nineveh simply says something like, because he was right. We were wicked. We had sinned. We did deserve judgment. The only way to receive forgiveness and escape judgment from you was to repent. And then the judge asks the queen of Sheba, why did you travel so far to see the wisdom of Solomon? And the queen says, well, when I had received word that the God of the Jews' wisdom was on display in the reign of his king. I had to take the journey to see and hear it for myself. And let me tell you, when I saw and heard, I believed. And then the judge turns to the Jews and says, Why did you reject my wisdom and grace 
displayed through my chosen servant, the perfect prophet better than Jonah, the perfect priest, the perfect king, Jesus. And the Jews say, well, we didn't have a sufficient sign. There wasn't enough evidence. And then the judge says, curious. Did he not perform many miracles? And they say, well, he did. And the judge says, well, did he not prove through his words and his works that he was the fulfillment of the prophecies of old? And the Jews say, yes. And after more questioning of the same kind, the judge turns to the Ninevite king and says, well, you heard the call to repentance from one of my messengers and believed. What do you say about these Jews' demand for more signs than they have already received? Do they deserve judgment? And the king of Nineveh says, yes turns to the queen and says, you heard about my wisdom on display through my king. You saw and heard for yourself and believed. What say you? Do they deserve judgment? And the queen says, yes. And then the judge says to the Jews, these Gentiles condemn you. What an insult that would have been. They saw and heard and believed lesser signs at an earlier time. You had the Messiah standing right in front of you with all the proof you could ever ask for, and you did not believe. Therefore, your sentence is condemnation. Let the weight of that picture sink in. You know why Jonah had no interest in preaching the good news to the Ninevites at the beginning of the book? It's because they were pagans. They were infamous for their barbaric and torturous conquests. They were wicked, evil, brutal, godless people. And Jesus, at this moment in Matthew 12, calls the Jews a wicked and adulterous generation. These men who were quick to say on another occasion, we have Abraham as our father, Jesus says, yes, but the Ninevites stand in judgment over you. They repented, and you refused to. Likewise, the queen of Sheba was not only a Gentile, but she was a woman. And for Jewish men at that time to be told that a Gentile woman stood in judgment over them would have been astonishing. The point in all this is that the Jews had a greater sign in front of them than the message of repentance that Jonah brought to Nineveh. And a greater sign than the wisdom of Solomon standing right in front of them and they wanted more because they were rebellious. And the Pharisees And so many religious people today have the glory of God on display on the pages of his word in the person and work of Jesus Christ right in front of them or right in their hands. And forget about it taking their breath away. They don't even believe at all. And in fact, like some of the Pharisees, they may even blaspheme him. Oh, my friend, no matter who you are listening to this, either at this moment in this room or live or later on a recording, 
wherever you stand with Jesus right now, the call to us is the same. Look to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and you will see all the information you need in order to believe. So trust him and follow him, whether for the first time or every day. The fourth thing that we see in these words of Jesus in our text is concerning the residency of rebellious hearts. Verses 43 through 45. Jesus continues right after he says that something greater than Solomon is here. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. I suspect that this final handful of verses is a bit... Uh, tougher to wrap our minds around at first glance than the other ones. It feels a little bit cryptic at first glance. But I think the key to understanding this verse in its context is the last phrase in verse 45. So also will it be with this evil generation. That's the same phraseology that Jesus used in his first words of this section, uh, of the section previous in verse 30, uh, 39 an evil and adulterous generation. So what that tells me is that verse 39 and verse 45 are sort of bookends to this passage. Jesus' point overall in this passage has already been pretty clear that the Jews were rebelling against what should have been plain enough for them to accept that Jesus is the Messiah and that they needed to repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus as the Savior. Knowing that, and then seeing that verses 30, 43, 44, and 45 are tied to 38 through 42, I think helps us to see that these verses are just more of what he has been saying, but with some nuance to it and with another illustration. It's an illustration of what Jesus has already been getting at in this whole dispute with the Pharisees. And I think if you were to be concerned with all the potential sidetrack type questions about what exactly a waterless place is and whether or not that has something to do with demonology and what happens when a demon is cast out of a person is, is, is not, it would be a mistake because that's not the point of this text. It's in the Bible, so it matters, but it's not the point of this passage. I think simply what Jesus is doing here is painting the picture of of an illustration of what happens here. Okay, so the illustration that Jesus uses is the illustration of a waterless place or a desert, a place where there is no water that is therefore not a nice place to live. And so the picture is this evil spirit leaving a person, needing a new place to stay, only having the desert as an option, wanting to go somewhere, naturally more hospitable than that, figuring it'll go back to the same house again and try that again, finds it available because it's empty, and then goes and gets a bunch of his friends that are even worse than he is and make it seven times worse than it was before that first evil originally left. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. When evil is removed from a person, 
if that person remains empty, in other words, if that evil is not replaced through a spiritual renovation, then what happens is that even though their life may appear like this house, in verse 44, swept and put in order, or may appear, in other words, cleaned up, that person will remain vulnerable to evil returning and making things even worse. In fact, Jesus using the number seven is, is certainly purposeful because that's the number of perfection in the Bible. And so it's basically saying perfectly worse, infinitely worse. And then this final tag, the wrap-up of our whole passage, putting a bow on this section in chapter 12, so will it be with this evil generation. You see the point Jesus is making to these Jews who continued to rebel against him? What he's saying is that if all you do is try to keep yourself clean externally through outward religious conformity, you're actually making yourself more vulnerable to more evil because without a miraculous inner renovation or transformation, you are heading for legalistic evil like the Pharisees were, which apparently is even worse than the kind of evil that they wanted to sweep out and keep clean. That's what they had done. They had distorted God's law and God's grace in their legalism, and they had ended up with hypocritical, self-righteous, external cleanness, removing the evil in that sense, but then vulnerable to an even greater evil to come and live in them. So I think what Jesus is saying in the context of this whole chapter and in the context of this whole passage from verse 39 through verse 45 is this. You have to actually repent and believe. You have to actually turn from your sin and trust in me. Otherwise, you're just switching out evils every day. Every chance you get, pictured here as this some kind of sweeping that's needed. But then even worse than the need for sweeping up is coming an even greater evil. Again, remember the context of this passage. Jesus' words regarding the unforgivable sin of hard-hearted, persistent, knowing rejection of the revelation of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to us in the glory and goodness of God on display through him. And so Jesus is talking to these people who I believe are perilously close to going past the point of no return from which they will never be able to repent and will never be able to be forgiven. These people who have the evidence clearly in front of them, but it's just never enough because they're an evil and adulterous generation, because their problem is an inner spiritual problem, not simply an outward religious problem. And Jesus is saying that unless they submit to him as the king, unless they repent of their sin, turn from it, and trust in him as the Savior, they are heading for the penalty that evil and adulterous generations deserve. Those who experience and observe God's kingdom's breakthrough through the ministry of Jesus 
such as in the event that precedes our text where Jesus overcomes demonic oppression and possession. And those who see that and only do some cleanup as a result are opening themselves up to an even worse condemnation than they would have if they had not received him at all because they're being neutral, so to speak, rejecting, ultimately unaffected by the words of Jesus. And it's interesting, in the reading that I did on this passage and on this section, I saw it coming up over and over again, and author after author after author, and I'm going to say it too, you can't remain neutral to Jesus. You are either all in or you're all out. You can't simply try to live a clean life because of Jesus, but never be inwardly renovated through faith-fueled repentant submission to Jesus as the King. Friends, did you know that you can live a life free from foul language, a life filled with modest clothing, a life that is characterized by going to church every Sunday like you should, a life that never looks at pornography, a life that keeps your home, your family clean, but never be a follower of Jesus? Friends, the Pharisees were masterful at keeping their lives in order. Their morals were clean. Their devotion to religious duty was exemplary. Their reputation when it came to personal holiness was pristine. And yet, the moment that their Messiah arrived and began to reveal to them that it was their hearts that God wanted and not just external conformity, they rejected him because their hearts were evil and adulterous. So we have to ask ourselves, how... Do our lives match up with this picture from Jesus to illustrate his point? Is your life simply a house, so to speak, that's being swept up and put in order every so often, but has never been characterized by the true transformation that comes through faith and repentance? Friends, external conformity will not do the trick. Just seeking to keep your life clean from a religious perspective doesn't do the trick. My friend, if, like the Pharisees, you are not all in on Jesus, then, as he has already said, and he says here in our text today, you're ultimately opposed to him. And if ultimately, on the inside, you're just sort of neutral, in other words, you say something like, well, this Jesus guy makes a lot of really good points that I agree with. And I have to admit, there are certain things that he has said that were a real help to me. And in fact, I would even say he's a really big part of my life. But if he is not the whole purpose of your life, then you're his enemy. You're a traitor to the king. But if that's you, I have good news for you. He loves to forgive. And he receives all who repent and believe on him. And I don't say this every week, but I think I should. And I'm going to say it today. I'm going to be standing up here after the service. And if you have any questions about how you can turn to Jesus and experience the miraculous transformation that comes through faith in him, and therefore go from being neutral or opposed to being all in, 
I would love to chat with you about that and even take a few minutes to pray with you. Friend, if you are already his, but you find yourself sometimes wishing that God would intervene in the way you want him to, if you wish he would give you some proof, some evidence to show you that he is good, that you can trust him, that he's your savior, that he's your hope. And this will probably be particularly true for people who are in the moment of some great trial. Then I say to you, my dear friend, turn your eyes to the empty tomb of your risen savior, the greatest sign of all that you can trust him and trust him. He is yours. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in our risen Christ. We thank you for even difficult and confrontational messages from your word on the pages of Scripture that remind us of the need for our repentance for daily sin, the need for those who have never turned to Jesus to come to him in faith, the need for all of us to look to the risen Christ as the one in whom our hope rests. If there's anyone here today who has never turned to Jesus in faith and with repentance, I pray that today would be that day. And for all of my Christian brothers and sisters gathered here this morning, particularly those who are struggling in some way with some kind of trial, please help them to look to Jesus as the greatest sign of where their hope is found. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer quietly for just a few minutes.